Um, did, did everyone get a copy of our psalm for today, Psalm 126? I have, um, would, any, would you uh, enjoy passing these out to anyone who might not have them? Excellent. I'll keep one. I'll keep one. Just this one. Just this just, just one. <laughs> did you see me running around while Emily was doing announcements? I was looking for my notes. I lost my notes. That's like panic attack for a pastor. While those are getting passed out, um, I want to say hello to uh, Jay Lee is always uh, tuning in. Hi, Jay Lee. It's good to see you. Mama Bears, uh, Jason and Kristen are tuning in, I think, from uh, Kansas City. So we met a lot of Mama Bears from all over the place when Liz Dyer was here a couple of Sundays ago. And I just want to say it's nice to go to a church that is actually good news for some people. Like... I was talking with a friend of a friend of a friend of one of my kids who lives in um, a province of Canada and has grew up in a like a Hillsong hipster church that's great if you're straight, wasn't great for him, never talked to a pastor who was connected to the kinds of things that we're doing. Never knew it was possible to integrate being a Jesus follower and, and gay and not to have those be in conflict. And we spent an hour on FaceTime. And I was telling them all about Emily, how can she, she can preach circles around the best evangelical pastors I've ever seen. And I tell them about you. And, and he was like, I'm talking about the Misties and like the wow. And like, oh my gosh, this is so encouraging and it's like oh I was thinking about that when I was coming to church today and I was feeling super uber good lift good too just to keep it so we're doing a little series on um, helpful healing texts from sacred scripture and last week we considered our connection with loved ones who have died it was All Saints Day And today, um, we're looking at a Psalm 126, which is uh, about living with a long-term sadness or a long-term ache, Um, which I think is quite helpful for us because we're, I guess you could say we're like a sadness avoidance society in in general. Um, Sadness is often regarded as like a pathology and it's, you know, how to fix it, which is not to say depression isn't real and, and that it, it's good to fix it if it's fixable and all that. But the Jewish understanding that is reflected in sacred scripture of the Jewish people um, has a much um, broader and I would say healthier relationship to sadness. Um, and Psalm 126 is one of the Psalms that has really helped me with this. So. About a year ago, I was missing my old dear friend, Phyllis Tickle, who died in 2015. And so I started a um, little pre-dinner praying routine where I kind of like invited Phyllis. I'll I'll pray this with Phyllis on the communion of the saints thing. Because she had given me this prayer book. And we were like uh, praying the office nerds, Phyllis Tickle and I, meaning, you know, the old traditions of the church where you have like set hours of prayer through the day and then you have prayer books for those set hours of prayer. And her favorite little office was called Known, N-O-N-E. 
If someone can look that up, what does known mean in Latin for the prayer offices? It's like 3 p.m. I would use it for pre-dinner. That's when she would pray for her family and she had a whole routine. And so I started doing that before dinner. And so I spent, um, I spent basically the last year, more days than not, with Psalm 126, which is part of that um, daily office or daily set prayer period. And it goes like this. When the Lord delivered Zion from bondage, it seemed like a dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. On our lips there were songs. The heathens themselves said, what marvels the Lord worked for them. What marvels the Lord worked for us. Indeed, we were glad. Deliver us, O Lord, from our bondage as streams in dry land. Those who are sowing in tears will sing when they reap. They go out, they go out full of tears, carrying seed for the sowing. They come back, they come back full of song, carrying their sheaves. Now, when you spend time with a text like this, over like many days and weeks, in my case it was, it was months, it can exert like a slow fizz effect on you. And I, I like this about certain texts of scripture that, that you expose yourself to over a longer period of time. It's like a slow fizz effect. It's like a, it prepares a way for a deeper dive effect later, which is more like a perception shift. You see something in in the way the universe might be put together that you didn't see before, you perceive, you perceive life differently. You think about these, these songs were written by people like we're talking at least 500 BC. They probably go back earlier than that. It was a different world. It was a different way of thinking. They're speaking a different language, which means they think different thoughts and they have a different relationship with all sorts of things. And Tapping into that can kind of expand the realm of possibilities for our own way of connecting with reality. And that gets mediated through a, a song like this. And the, the Psalms were the songbook of the Bible. So the slow fizz phase of engaging a psalm like this is all about the feel of the thing. So there's just always been something in the feel of Psalm 126 that has appealed to me. Um, even as there are aspects of the psalm that are kind of ambiguous, it don't, don't really make sense. I don't know what they're talking about. So that's the thing about poetry and about lyrics. Um, they're all about emotion and usually just enough meaning to carry and to, to deliver the emotion, but it's about the emotion. So I'll just offer you an okay boomer moment here. Um, <laughs> Nights in white satin by the Moody Blues. Um, Nights in white satin, never reaching the end. Letters I've written, never meaning to send. Beauty I'd always missed with these eyes before. Just what the truth is, I can't see anymore. And I love you. Ooh, you're feeling the swell if you're into the Moody Blues. And like, what are nights in white satin? I don't know. And the lyric, it says, nights in white satin and like nights, like nighttime. So the title is nights in white satin, you know, nights on horses, but it's nights, night, and what's going on? It doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't matter. It's all about the, it's all about the feeling. So I went to YouTube to get, to get the lyrics for this. And, you know, there's comments on the YouTube video songs. And the comments are often delightful. Like, you know, sometimes they're not. But the one on, on Moody Blues, it was just delightful. And they were so poignant. Like this, this one guy writes, I love the girl in college. And I told her how I felt. Our lips touched and the passion was incredible. That very night she died at the hand of a drunk driver. Please, if you love someone, tell them. That was his response to this song. Um, another guy writes, I have bipolar problems and this song always calms me more than my medicine ever did. This song is the best medicine I've ever had. So, and there were others like that. And no trolls, no trolls at all on this song. So the feeling of Psalm 126 has always been for me, it's like a sadness ache that someone carries for a long time alongside like a hope of a future happiness. So next door to that feeling of sorrow is this glad song that's on its way. That's the, that's the feeling terrain of Psalm 126. So even if we have no idea what it refers to, we all have different sadness aches um, that we kind of realize at a certain point aren't necessarily going to go away or anytime soon. It might be like a, a relationship rupture. It could be a, a loved one's chronic illness. It could be living under the oppression owing to race or gender or sexual orientation or loving someone who lives under that and knowing that Sometimes um, when we deal with these sadness aches, we, we are so afraid of sadness, especially in our like fix-it-immediately society, that we do counterproductive things to cover up that feeling of sadness. And those cover-up things end up actually depleting us more than if we just sat in the sadness. Plus, it's still there. Um, so we have to like learn to live with the sadnesses while getting on with our lives and, and not being afraid of it. So there's been some research done that one of the healthiest things we can do with sadness like this is to listen to music that connects us to the sadness. Like listening to sad music when you're sad is actually helpful. Like it's not like wallowing in the sadness. It doesn't make it worse. It makes it, if anything, better. So. This is, this is fascinating, and often when you're listening to that kind of music, um, it will stimulate even a feeling of hope, or of meaning, or of purpose, or if only company um, with you in the sadness that you're feeling, and the effect is, is helpful, it's, it's comforting, you don't feel as alone in the, in the sadness. So during the slow fizz phase of my use of Psalm 126, I'm just telling you my like Psalm 126 testimony of the past year, I was able to just sit with, even at times name, my own long-term sadness aches and experience them through the psalm as like, oh, I'm sharing it with these people who were involved in this, singing songs like this, so long ago and with everyone else who's kind of learned this song and sung it over the ages all over the world and there's also this sense of the hope that's in this song that's like woven into 
alongside the sadness like a silver thread through a, like a fabric. So for me, the deep dive effect occurred when I interrogated an ambiguity and a confusion in the text. Like, what's happening when in Psalm 126? It's like the future and the present text, they're all mixed up in this psalm, and that's reflected in, I'm giving you two different translations on page one of your sheet. It's the one I used in this prayer book, and that first stanza is, when the Lord delivered, past tense, Zion from bondage, it seemed like a dream then, in the past, when the Lord delivered us from bondage. Our mouth was filled with laughter, on our lips there were songs. And then you flip over, and you get the Robert Tr Alter translation, and it's when the Lord restores, like in the future, Zion's fortunes. We should be like dreamers. Then will our mouth fill with laughter and our tongue with glad song. Then they will say, among the nations. And so I went to my source, Robert Alter, the best Hebrew scholar alive, from, and done a magnificent opus, magnum translation of the Hebrew Bible. And he says about this verse here, Verb tenses, what indicates past, present, or future, are fluid in biblical poetry. And by fluid, he means like ambiguous. Uh, there is disagreement as to whether the verbs here and in what follows are to be understood as past or future. So is this a resolution that has already happened? Uh, they were in exile in Babylon, sowing in tears, and now they've been delivered, are back home in Jerusalem, singing the glad songs, or are they anticipating a future return from exile? Robert Alter says it's the latter. It says they are in exile, dreaming while they're in exile of a future return that's coming, but they're dreaming about it as dreams happen, as if it has already happened. Stick with me as I go into hidden brain mode for a moment. I'm in hidden brain mode. Memory, they say, is a function of what we would call the imagination. Like in the brain, when we're having memories, it's happening in the part of our brain that does imagining. What's your imagination? Picture an elephant. That's our imagination. So the part of the brain that imagines is the same part that remembers things. And that's why imagination or memory is what's the word fungible, you know, like every couple knows this when they're disagreements, right? It's like, I remember this and I remember that. And it's like, well, what happens is you, you know, things happen and they have effect on your brain, but it's happening in your imagination and you fill in the blanks and you adapt it and adjust it to fit your narrative of how things are and to fit you being an awesome person and the other person being an idiot. And, you know, it just, that's all going on inside of our brain. We call that memory. It's also like history, you know, it's like, wow. Um, so that's interesting. Now, memory has a lot of power to console us, right? And to comfort us. I mean, at a very basic level. When you are physically away from someone you love and you're missing them, you can always remember them, call them up into your imagination, and feel a little bit more connected to them, right? 
Um, but it can also happen through like treasured memories. Like I was with Gary Rosenberg last week over there at York having coffee. He sells insurance and was in town, called me up because we uh, were friends at Henry Ford High School in Detroit back in the day. And we've kind of reconnected lately. And I mentioned to Gary, we're talking about all the old gang at Detroit, you know, Henry Ford, who's blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned my late wife, Nancy, and Gary's face, it just lit up. He's, he's a very animated person. He said, oh my God, Ken, Nancy Roselle, she was gorgeous. Oh my gosh, I just never even thought of her as possibly being in my league. Like, how did you score Nancy Roselle? She was so smart and she was tuned in. And like, I remember Nancy, she would walk into the room with such energy and she was just on it. And I was like, as he was describing my late wife, I was like, yeah, oh yeah. It's like, I did, I did, I, I made that move and it worked. Oh my gosh, how did that happen? It was such a comforting memory that he shared with me. And memories can do that. They can also traumatize us, but they're the comforting ones. And memory is a function, remember, of the imagination. So when we dream of a future desired outcome, you're in a job you don't enjoy, and you find yourself just daydreaming about having a job that you actually do enjoy, that dream is happening in the realm of imagination too, same as memory. So just as a memory can comfort and console us, a dream of a positive future outcome can do the same. We could think of it as a memory of the future. A dream, we experience a dream like it's a memory of the future that affects us in the present like a memory does. So here in Psalm 126, you have these Jewish exiles in Babylon, you know, 500, 600 years before the time of Jesus. They've lost their homeland. They've been deported north to Babylon, the superpower of the time. They're traumatized. They're living in Jewish ghettos. They're struggling. They're surviving. They're remembering, but they're also dreaming of a return from their, to their homeland. When the Lord delivered, past tense, Zion from bondage, it seemed like a dream because it is a dream. They're describing the dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. They were dreaming about this future time when they would be filled with joy and laughter. On our lips there were songs. The heathens themselves, those idiots, those, those Babylonian Gentiles who are treating us like trash, they said, what marvels the Lord worked for them. You know, when your enemies say, oh my God, God is with you and on yours. Oh, that feeling of vindication. It's very, very sweet. And they were enjoying this sweet, sweet feeling. The heathens themselves said, what marvels the Lord worked for them. What marvels the Lord worked for us. Indeed, we were glad. This is all the, the dream that they're recounting. Then they slip into the present and speak from it. Deliver us, O Lord, from our bondage as streams in dry land. And I think uh, Robert Alter has a more um, uh, literal translation there. I, I'm not sure if he uses the term wadi or uh, freshets. 
What he's talking about there is it's like a gulch or a valley that dries up in the summer months in, in the Middle East and all the wildflowers die, but their seeds are very drought resistant. And then finally in the fall, like October, November, when the rains come and then that, that gully, that gulch fills with water and it's stream coursing through there, then the seeds bloom and it's full of wildflowers again. Planet Earth too, I love planet Earth. Yeah, and I think it's planet Earth too, I'm not sure, but it's like in the sub-Saharan regions and there are places where it's, just, it's dry for like seven-year cycles of dryness. And evolution has evolved these, uh, these seeds to be incredibly drought-resistant. And they're, they're down there through seven years of drought and then the seventh year the rains come and then the, the, then the floods and the streams go through there and they do this time-lapse video, you know, and it's just dry as a bone and wildflowers all over, you know. Then they do it and then it all shrinks up and then it's like, oh, this is the image that we're using here in Psalm 126. Sometimes like our joy or our happiness in the present is like one of those drought resistant seeds and it's just like buried deep in our hearts. And you think yourself incapable of joy again when you're in that kind of a deeper um, pervasive sadness and then there's a shift in the season and it's in it and it all springs up and you're like where did that happiness come from well it, it was there it was just a seed um, those who are sowing in tears will sing when they reap this is quite an image it's like um it's like the sower, the sowers have a, a seed bag, I think Robert Alter uses the image of the seed bag here. And they're carrying the seed bag and they're throwing out the seed and their watering can is their tears, right? So this is, this is the image going on here. So like, what if we thought of our present sadnesses as a time when we're sowing in tears for a future time when we'll sing as we reap and that there's actually some connection between our tears and then the reaping. What if we framed our experience of sadness like that? Would, would that be a comfort? Would our sadnesses be more bearable, more uh, less frightening? And then now comes for the end the intensification through repetition. Um, so the lovely thing about Hebrew is um, it doesn't, uh, its power is not in rhyme, its power is in repetition and rhythm. And that makes it really good for translating into other languages because it's really hard to translate and make rhymes happen. So that's why kind of this stuff works like all over the world. It has repetition and rhythm and the repetition is like an intensifying device. We have that right here. They go out, they go out, full of tears, carrying seed for the sowing. They come back, they come back full of song carrying their sheaves. It's like, whew, now it's happening. So three things this praying this psalm has done for me. One, it's helped me embrace the fact that I have a sadness ache that isn't going away anytime soon. And that's, hello, that's like part of the human condition. Um, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's like, it's not just um, personal family issues. It's, it's, it's got that, but it's also like the state of things, 
You know, I don't know. I think as you get older, I become more concerned about like what's going around, you know, in society because like I don't want to leave a really crappy world for my kids and my grandkids. And so I get, I, I find myself getting more distressed about things as I get older. And it's, it's not just from being on social media. It's like engaging with reality. Um, I was reading uh, Tanahishi Coates, Between the World and Me. It's a letter to his son, great writer. Um, Tony Morrison calls him like the James, uh, James Baldwin of our time. Just very high praise. And he's written this letter. He grew up in West Baltimore and he's writing to his son who's 15. It's 150 pages. It's this like stark and powerful. And he's a, he's a beautiful writer. And it's like, oh my God. You know, this is, this is bad. Um, and then, you know, I, I, like I think about, I think about my, my friends. I think about Mike. You know, he he's, has to raise his sons to be careful about how, you know, you behave yourself when the, when the police stop you. Like, put your hands on the steering wheel, both hands on the steering wheel. If you're holding a cell phone because you're trying to, you're on waves and you're trying to find your way, drop that cell phone. You know, because that might be mistaken for something else. And, like, I, I never talked to my sons about that. My son, one son. I think about my daughter. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. In college, we're talking about getting stopped by the police and, you know, different, you know, traffic tickets. And she leaks out. That she was stopped for speeding seven times. And she got seven warnings. Mm. Me as a father, I'm saying, Lord, Buster, Buster the next time. Don't let her just keep getting away with this. And sure enough, God answers the father's prayers. She was stopped the eighth time, and it was a female police officer. Praise the Lord. Slap that girl with a ticket. Yes. Those are two very different experiences of the police. And it's representative of just a, just a chasm, a divide in our society. And it's like, I can read a book by Ta-Nehisi Coates, but I, I don't feel that. I don't live with that reality, but I have loved ones who do. And that's a sadness for me. Or I think about um, climate change. Like, I, I, I spent some time with some climate scientists back in the 2000s. It's a long story. But I, was, I, I, I literally spent time with, like, top-flight climate scientists. I saw them talking with each other, and I was asking them questions. And this is over a lengthy period of time in different settings. Hard to believe, but it's true. And, I, and I'm like, these are just nerdy people who they put plastic um, liners in their... In their Shirts, because of all the pens, um, that's really nerdy. You know, when you have a plastic liner in your shirt pocket, and they're, they're, they're not really like political people or activists, and I saw them talking about this and, and, and how the, the, the society at that time, there was so much like, like uh, they were coming under like stress from different administrations and things being crossed out. The, the scientists are writing by political advisors, and, and so they're, they're, they have a tendency to like make their predictions more cautious so they're not being charged with being alarmist. And it was like the most exaggerated, 
10 years ago, versions of predictions of what are happening are happening, and they're, they're worse than the original projections. And I have a granddaughter who's three years old, and she lives in the Bay Area, and Julie and I went to visit her last fall, and we couldn't go outside because of the smoke of the fires in Northern California, and you couldn't even see any fires near them. I was walking through San Francisco and there was a guy on the street smoking. <laughs> it was just, that was interesting. You literally weren't supposed to be outside. We, 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 went to, we went from Michigan, when it's getting bleak, to Northern California thinking, oh, glory, and we're inside the whole time. And my granddaughter is breathing that, and she's going to live until, you know, at least till like 2080, 2090, when the worst things are just going to be hitting the world big time changing the world she lives in. I feel angry about that, but I also feel sad about that. And that's, that's not going away. There's no pill that's going to help with that particular sadness. So reading this psalm has helped me just embrace the reality of a sadness ache that's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, but the lovely thing is, you know, happiness and sadness are not like all on or all off states like the lights, you know. They co-mingle, number one. They go along simultaneously. And then they, you know, one dominates and then the other dominates and there's, there's variation. So this is, uh, psalm has helped me embrace that part of the human experience. Um, no feelings last forever. It's just, it's just normal. And I'm not alone in that. And then second thing is the psalm has helped me be on the alert for good memories so I can treasure them and use, use the power of memory to, to comfort myself. So I, four out of my six kids live far away, and I don't see them very much. And nearly every day in my little pre-dinner praying, the next psalm in the little thing, in the, did anyone find out what known means? N-O-N-E for office? N-O-N-E. It would be like Latin prayer office or something like that. You can interrupt me if I'm in a real boom part of the sermon, you know, which doesn't happen that often. What is it? Ninth hour. There you go. 3 p.m. would be ninth hour in the Roman. Noon is the sixth hour. Thank you. Known. Nine. Oh, they just got one letter wrong. Okay, easy. Um, so in that, in that prayer time, the next... Um, uh, psalm is about um, uh, children and so I go through a thing where I just think about each of my kids I name them and I'm kind of invoking them and I feel surrounded by them and it's it's comforting it's good um, and then third the psalm has helped me be bold enough to let myself dream of a future when some of my sadnesses at least at least are resolved or the sting has faded, or uh, there's been an o such an overlay of joys that they just diminish. And that, that's just something I never even really thought of before, or even explored before, but when I'm doing my little Psalm 126 routine, I let myself do that on different, different issues. A little bit too personal for me to share, but being specific about how I'm picturing things turning out like this they were specific here like these exiles they imagined when they and they probably wrote glad songs 
So they pictured the glad songs that they're going to be singing when everything, when they're coming back home, and then they wrote those songs, and then they sang those songs while they were in exile in Babylon. Writing a song is a work of imagination, isn't it? They were, they were dreaming through the, through the song. Many of the songs that we sing are dream songs like that. And then they were picturing specific things. The heathens themselves said, what marvels the Lord worked for them. My, our, my enemies and my opponents finally admitted, we are right, they're wrong. Oh, that's when things are really working. When things are right again. Yes, quiet reflection. Let us have a quiet reflection time. Take two or three minutes. Um, rather than reflect on this psalm um, in its entirety, I'll use a single verse from Psalm 30 that gets at this in a much simpler way. You may be familiar. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So what I want to suggest that you do is you pick a friend or a loved one who is going through some difficult period and is in the middle of like a sadness or a difficulty. So it's not focused on you, it's focused on this loved one who's going through some difficulty or sadness. Take some time to call them to mind and if you can just picture them um, sitting in a familiar setting that kind of fits them. Like I, I would think of my sister Marilyn in New York, she's going through a difficult time. She has a particular chair in her apartment that she sits in, so I would picture her in that chair. So pick that out, that setting for this loved one. And then um, once you've got the picture uh, in your mind, then just imagine a ray of light shining on them like in the middle of their body and this light just slowly spreads through their whole body and it forms an orb of light that entirely encompasses them. I just go ahead and spend a couple of minutes with that exercise. Take about 30 more seconds. Amen. By the way,